Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Sachin Adam Show. Now we haven't been together for a while. This is the first one that we're doing this year. Um, we've been on holidays for a while, been having some fun, but now we're back into it. We've got a really, really exciting episode today. Um, if you know anything about what me and Sachin want to do in the future, you'll realize why we're really excited about our guest today. We're interviewing a guy called Peter Bruce Clark, whose career is something that we really, really want to emulate and something that we really admire. But I'll let Sachin take it away. Yeah. And when I was trying to kind of compile this list of what Peter has done, I had to keep clicking show more experience, show more experience on LinkedIn. Um, but Peter's um, crown, he's from England, actually. Um, and he studied English literature at Queen Mary University and then a Master's of Phil at Cambridge. Um, and he's worked at companies such as PwC, Oxford Economics. But Peter's main career has the VC and startup world, particularly for the social impact space. Um, he's been an act, active angel investor and is a partner at Social Impact Capital, investing in entrepreneurs that are building world-changing companies, which, of course, is super exciting for us. Uh, so, Peter, we're going to try something else in 2021 and start off by asking our guests, can you tell us a story or anecdote that kind of shows you the per shows us or our audience the person you are? Sure. Uh, I was thinking about this before the episode, and I was like, what really... Um, is a good insight into like how I do things and what motivates me and that kind of thing. I and my whole family, uh, I'm Australian. Um, I am the weird person at the dinner table who uh, is like the pommy dude. Um, and, you know, back in the day in, in the 90s, you know, my family uh, grew up in rural Australia, like, you know, four hours outside of Melbourne, like you've never heard of the place kind of vibe. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my father and my mother basically always said yes to things. And whenever they got opportunities, they just said yes. And so that's what they did. And that um, ended up with them going to the States and uh, going to Canada uh, and then uh, eventually having me in America, which is why I'm also American. Um, and uh, then eventually going back to Melbourne and then coming back to the UK. So my, my family based in, in Oxford in England. And I grew up probably around eight um, onwards in England. And um, my family were all always on the receiving end of a very um, a certain type of English class system, I think, in terms of like regard of our family. And um, I would always be around the dinner table hearing all of these different um, interesting microaggressions towards us because we were Australian. Uh, and I thought that was really weird. And I ended up adopting all of the manners and behaviors of all of the English kids that I grew up with, right? So um, I found that culture really uh, interesting. Like I obviously adopted certain ways of being that were more within that culture. Um, and then uh, as I got a bit older, um, I sort of noticed that I had a lot of privileges um, that came with that um, and uh, a lot of inability of other people to place me. Um, which I really loved because I was suddenly like, well, why, why do you have all of these presuppositions about my family and, and being Australian, what, what that's like, you know, in, in the 90s and like, you know, all of, all of the um, interest, it's an interesting sort of um, thing that's definitely changed, I think, today and, the, and, and people's attitudes have changed and, and frankly prejudices. Um, and then like flash forward going to America where you're basically told, well, you can do anything. Um, just work hard and it doesn't really matter where you came from if you do, if you you know bootstrap yourself up like that's that's valuable and I think that um, 
I was always instilled that as uh, in my family. Um, and then realizing that some places are conducive to letting you flourish and others are not. Um, and I felt really when I, when I came to the States, I was able to be the full circumference of myself, you know, and not have to adjust to be, you know, fall in line, know your place, that all of that sort of stuff, um, which I found very old fashioned. Um, so it was very much like going to San Francisco and Silicon Valley and, and the tech ecosystem that basically showed me that it really doesn't matter where you're from and, and what your family, you know, what, what your family background is. If you work hard and you're, and you're smart and you can, and you, you know, you, you get strategic, you can do anything. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think probably for the last year, especially from where we are in Sydney, we've seen a big vilification of American culture with all these different things going on. And it's nice to hear something positive about how that kind of made you feel. Um, yeah, like you I think it's something that I hear from people and I read a lot about this sort of distinction between the elitism of England and then that sort of opportunity um, and sort of go-go mentality of the USA. And it's interesting that you've got to experience both cultures. And as Sachin was sort of saying before, like you've done a lot of things in your professional life and we really want to dig into that. So I was wondering if you could just give us a really quick sketch of your career so far and how you got to the place where you are now. Yeah. Um, oh, a brief sketch. Oh, well, all right. So, so I feel like in general, my life is quite non-linear. Um, and I've always equally like my parents jumped at things. So whenever somebody has said, oh, do you want to do this? I've been like, yeah, that sounds cool. Of course, I'll try that. Um, and so, you know, from graduating, when I first graduated with my English degree and my uh, philosophy degree, I was working for Mercer in New York, which is an investment consultancy. I always remember um, working on these client projects with some big institutions being like, why is money flowing in this direction? I don't get it. Like, couldn't we make it go towards projects or businesses that were doing things differently in a positive way. And um, that really resonated with me. And it, it really sort of um, was quite formative as a professional experience and uh, frustrating as it was like interesting and in getting a lot of these different skills and, and assessment skills for, for investments. Um, and from there, I realized that nobody takes a arts degree student seriously. Uh, so I came back and uh, I got my master's just out of pure belief I should collect a stamp of approval that I could actually do business. Um, so I did that and that was the reason why I did it actually. It wasn't even really to uh, hunker down and like, you know, learn particularly. It was just to be more possible within the professional yeah. class. Um, and then from there, you know, I, I, I do, I've done lots of different like sort of management consulting, macro advisory research, that kind of stuff, always being very inquisitive about the world. Um, I also helped build back in the day for institutional investor, um, the Sovereign Wealth Center, which was like an analyst house for sovereign wealth funds. Um, and that was really actually when I first built the kind of research and ish company as a kind of startup. It was more of a, um, it was more kind of, entrepreneurship than entrepreneurship. That was the first flavor I got of entrepreneurship. And then flash forward um, after like this year in London, um, I was kind of a bit down in the dumps and I was a bit um, sort of unoptimistic about the future, mainly because back in the day, we didn't have such a flourishing global sort of startup ecosystem and an emerging ecosystem, venture ecosystem, for instance, like in, in Australia. And um, I was so sick of being told, oh, you should join BCG or uh, investment bank and then go work in private equity. 
I was like, that sounds really miserable. Mm -hmm. um, all you're telling me is that I should be like a sort of cash machine. Um, and like, I, I, that wasn't really in alignment with my values. Um, so I was very, very lucky because uh, I knew a man called Ashby Monk, who is based in San Francisco, who is sort of like a global funds expert, but also um, is just like wildly talented in a variety of different ways, hugely entrepreneurial, comes from an entrepreneurial background. And one day he was like, you know, I know you've always wanted to do impact and impact, you know, one of the other privileges that I had growing up is uh, with, with my father and my family, you know, I grew up in a household talking about sustainability and long-term investment. And that was like around the dinner table, which is obviously very unusual, but I knew about impact investing. I knew about stranded assets. I was thinking about long-term investment and what that meant for quite a while. And uh, Ashby knew that I was really passionate about that and said, well, hey, do you want to come over, do some research at Stanford uh, and work with these family offices in doing research about impact investing? And I basically was like, well, it can't be anything worse than my life right now. Um, and so, so I took him up on it and I was very fortunate to, to get that because I ended up working with Stanford, uh, the Donnelly family out of Chicago, uh, and uh, a family in Los Angeles to basically research what the optimal investment vehicle would look like for delivering impact through a fund, wow. um, which was absolutely incredible as an experience because I ended up getting to meet loads of different people that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to get into a room with. Um, so yeah, yeah. Conclusion with that, like what, what was the optimal investment vehicle that you found? <laughs> well, we're building it now. <laughs> uh, no, no, but, but, but in all seriousness, actually, um, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but, um, you know, talking with Sarah and, and joining Sarah and, and Social Impact Capital, uh, you know, she was actually building the thing that eventually I was writing about. So wow. it was kind of this sort of natural uh, and spontaneous kind of fortune that we got into contact. Wow. Um, and, she, and she really was building exactly what I thought would be the best vehicle for doing that. Um, but anyway, so flash forward, like, like, you know, I go to Silicon Valley, I go to Stanford, Palo Alto, I'm rocking around all this place and I knew nothing about technology and I knew nothing about venture capital, right? Um, but I got in the room with like Jacob Rothschild, uh, you know, big society capital and Ronald Cohen and um, all of these people also in the Bay Area who are doing impact investing on the forefront of that, like uh, Skulls, Jeff Skulls family office and that kind of thing. Um, and then also because it was more about um, the engineering of an investment institution to have impact, it was broader than just even venture or these private investments. It was like sovereign development funds and private equity managers and big pension funds. Like, how do you think about impact? So it was a super broad scope. Um, and at the end of that project, I ended up basically um, uh, having part of my research shelved because I was like, well, so I've got a philosophy background. I said, how can we even talk about this if we can't even agree what impact is? Uh, um, so that was part of my platform. And then another part of my platform was building a, um, building a uh, sort of research project around sovereign development funds. And sovereign development funds are super interesting because they've got by nature, like triple bottom line, right? Like just because of their design of what they're meant to achieve. Uh, you know, economically sparing a nation or diversifying or away from oil and gas or whatever it is that you were like wholly reliant on as a country. Anyway, so, um, and then a classic uh, sort of Silicon Valley form, I met a bunch of people, 
uh, try to spin out a fund uh, focused on machine learning and, and high, high impact applications of machine learning. So like preventative medicine and um, you know, climate solutions and that kind of thing. Um, which, you know, again, I got to talk to lots of different people and um, we were perhaps a bit immature in trying to set up a fund. I was probably, I'm not sure how old you guys are, but I was probably about 24, 25, something like that. Um, and then uh, from there, after that, that sort of didn't really come to anything, I then um, joined a uh, investment and technology startup uh, backed by 8VC and, and George Soros. Um, which was basically designed to try to provide tools and technologies for institutional investors and asset owners to better have a grasp of their portfolio. So could you, could you empower and um, sort of equip these big pension funds or even superannuation funds in Australia um, with technologies that would enable them to be really sophisticated in their investment management, which I thought was quite impactful. Um, and then I sort of circled back with Sarah and got back in touch with Sarah. There are other things that I'm, I'm totally omitting. Like, like I also built like a management consultancy for institutional investors, but like I did a lot of different things. <laughs> um, That's a lot of different things and it's a very non-linear path. And something I'll just like, like to wind back a little bit is sort of mm. from, it seems like from a pretty young age, you had this aversion to the sort of natural linear career path and you always knew you wanted to be an impact and doing sort of good sustainable things. What mm. was it deep down inside you that sort of prompted that? Like, was it your family, like you mentioned before, or did you maybe have some sort of experience that made you realize that life is more than just the sort of yeah. making money and going to a typical path? And maybe to frame that in a different way like do you have anything innately that made you less risk adverse than the average kind of business person um you know I, I i feel like very lucky to have been brought up by people who like care about other people um you know i always had um people brought in as a as a as a young person and i was always at the dinner table regardless of age too so i'd end up meeting lots of different types of people and, um, you know, my, my family's approach was, you know, um, be generous and um, pay it forward. And that was kind of the value system that I was brought up with. So because I had that value system, um, I think, you know, that's kind of why I was like, well, why should I have a concession? Why should I compromise on the things that I care about? Um, and then, you know, trying to then fit into this framework and this very traditional template in, in London and realizing that that didn't represent me or my values. Like I found that very jarring. Um, and also, you know, my dad, uh, my, my dad is, is a sort of take no prisoners chap. So he, he, uh, he's, he's like a no bullshit Australian. So, you know, I grew up with that where when he'd, he'd tell me stories like, you know, when he was building his career and he in his own right is, um, you know, very, very, very well known now in, in investment management and particularly in sustainability. Um, and he wouldn't have got where he was today if he had not done things in alignment with his values and, and, um, and his uh, passion, you know? So uh, I, I think I really put it down to like my family, to be honest. Awesome. Um, so Peter, you've done a lot of investments as well in Korea um, and overseen the to hear your investment process, both for your own personal angel investments and social impact capital. Yeah, so let me just, let me talk about social impact capital. So that's a whole um, that's a whole process uh, that's quite unusual. We we're, we're sort of 
pioneering a different model for investment management in venture capital in general. We're trying to innovate the model, um, mainly because we realized that we sort of assessed all the literature uh, in early stage investment. We realized that um, it's very much divided of whether or not a niche fund, like a specialist mandate fund focused on specific things like climate or health, um, might outperform a generalist fund that is you know, investing in all different sectors. We were reading both of these different literatures and everything out there historically on, on data and performance. And we just realized, well, actually there are really good things in the generalist strategy and there are really things, awesome things in the niche strategy. Why don't we just take the best of these different components of generalist and niche and put them together? So that's what we did as a firm. Um, so for us, with our process, um, you know, internally as a firm, we're, we're quite a tight, close-knit, small team. So Sarah, myself, and then we've got basically a back office team um, and then service providers and, you know, access like PwC and all that sort of stuff, right? So we've got like the whole back end for our fund. So we'll do internally our own venture diligence, very traditional venture diligence. It really depends on the sector. Um, and then we combine that with our extended team, which is now about 55 different venture partners and advisors um, who all work for us and work with us on a deal by deal basis. So we work with people who, um, you know, we'll get, get basically carry anywhere from sourcing a deal for us, helping us do diligence on a really technical deal, say in biotech or deep tech, um, and then all the way up to people even taking a board seat on our behalf if they're particularly, um, you know, uh, qualified to take that position. So that's quite unusual. Um, we don't really see that in, in the venture industry. That one comparable firm is um, NextGen Partners. Um, that that um, remunerates people for, for sourcing deals. But then we've got this specific niche too, which is that we only focus on startups that are impactful, right? So um, that's kind of how we how our lens pairs down all these opportunities. Because some people say- What's your definition of impactful from the social impact capital lens? Yeah, so um, well, it really depends on the sector and uh, the challenge that you're trying to tackle. Um, usually it's pretty obvious, we, we, as a heuristic, we tend to look for uh, companies that the impact is kind of built and baked into the business model. So it's part of the driver of the business model and it's like inextricably linked with like the financial component. So, you know, some people have, we will have these conversations about like, oh, well, do you optimize for impact or, or do you optimize for financial? And we say like, no, 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 that's completely wrong. Both. <laughs> Has to be both. Right. Um, and then... And, um, you know, for instance, uh, in climate, it's very, very obvious. It's like, you know, reducing carbon from the atmosphere um, or, you know, in health, uh, you know, patients, patients' lives saved or um, people's improved sort of longevity and that kind of thing. So usually pretty quantifiable. That's what we look for. Um, although there are some instances where it doesn't seem obvious. And um, we like to also point out that complex system challenges are kind of also not necessarily linear and solution. Um, just by like their nature. And so sometimes if you want to fix, say, for instance, education, uh, it's not just a matter of throwing ed tech down a corridor and expecting a different outcome. It's actually, you know, investing in family dynamics or investing in nutrition or uh, in ventilation even. And that's proven to have significant outcomes on test results. So, um, you know, we want to have the latitude to basically invest in anything that we think matters. That's awesome. I love the link between impact and finance. That's um, something me and Sachin really love. And so once you identify the companies that you believe are impactful and that you like, what's the next process down the sort of funnel of deciding to invest? 
Yeah, so um, usually what we do is we like triage on the deals that we really love. Either we will combine with a venture partner or advisor if we feel like it's a particularly complex deal that um, we need to augment our diligence process around. Um, we will go and do all sorts of acrobatics. Um, we also like to basically prepare for downstream risks. So we like to interview potential customers, potential acquirers about um, the value of, of what we're looking at. Um, we basically are very maximalist. We spend up to 30 hours on our tracking checks, which is kind of like a pre-seed strategy, but it's, um, it's we've sort of designed it differently. Um, and then for our conviction checks, which is roughly a, a seed strategy, we spend up to 100 hours doing due diligence. So. Um, we tend to be maximalist because also the research in the industry shows that surprise, surprise, when you do diligence, it's also correlated with returns. So yeah. um, that's our kind of approach. Two, two follow-on questions, kind of more technical yeah. questions again. Um, yeah. what, what stage of the business lifestyle do you usually invest in? And mm. um, do you find that there's an oversaturation of capital now that for some of these companies that you think are really great that you're competing with other venture firms um, to get the deal? Um, so sorry, what was the first question? Oh, the first question was just what life cycle, like what um, business oh. cycle stage are these businesses? Yeah, we like to be the first check-in institutionally. So if you look at our portfolio today, um, you know, we're like pre-YC, we're pre-tech stars. Um, we like to, we, we, we like to be there at the very first stages of company formation. So we can also develop a relationship with the entrepreneur over time, um, but also because we're constantly landscaping different industries and we want to um, know what the best option is um, and, and keep, you know, kind of like a, a hawks swoop in for when we, we find that perfect business. Um, and we're willing to take that, that early risk, um, mainly because we see ourselves in the market of having this other dual function, which is being this platform traditional funds. So we think in order to make impact really sexy and something that you might want to do yourself, um, you have to prove to the market that um, you're coming across high quality deals that are absolutely fantastic, like regardless of being impact deals. So, yeah. so we focus on finding these companies at the very early stages and then linking them up at the A round with top desk funds. So like Google Ventures or Felicis or, um, you know, Andreessen or Founders Fund or any of these sorts of high quality partners at the A round that then helps those companies proper J-curve. Um, mm. So that's kind of what we focus on. I've just got a couple of questions. So the first one, I'll ask them independently. Yeah. So will you invest again in the A round if you really like the company? Why, why do you, or do you just always sort of dish it off to another um, potential venture firm? Um, we'll never lead an, an A round uh, yeah. at, at present. Um, our strategy is to provide um, these options, investment options to the top funds. Mm. Um, we, we do that because we think that uh, you basically prove to the market that impact is a compelling investment strategy and lens. Um, and so that's kind of why we want to have these funds run without kind of top players. That doesn't mean that we won't follow on finance. We, we will. And we often will ask for pro rata in, in, our, um, in our investments when, because we're taking this initial risk too. And we're taking ostensibly like, you know, a lot of risk very early. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like you're trying to bring impact into the mainstream of like the Google ventures, the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world. And, and so when, when they do invest in that series A, do these, um, do these funds like, um, 
Google Ventures, do they kind of frame it as an impact investment or do they frame mm-hmm. it as just something in their portfolio? So we're, we're an unusual fund, I think, in the market and firm in the market. We basically firmly believe that it's worth standing for something and putting your sort of stake in the sand. There are some peers who are like, oh, world positive, or, you know, we, we think about the future and we're changing the future and in a really good way. And I'm like, that's not really rigorous. And um, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like we would love to syndicate with people who are thinking about building a positive future. But we personally think that in this day and age and particularly after this last governance cycle, um, actually standing for something as a firm and quantifying what you stand for and reporting on what you stand for is really critical. And we also think it's just the future of finance in general. Yeah. Um, LPs are increasingly interested in what their total ESG footprint is across their portfolio. And I think we're also moving into this paradigm of your total capital footprint. Um, and we want to know these things. And not only do like millennials want to know this, also Gen Zs want to know this. Uh, we want to know how our capital impacts people. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just the firm that takes that very literally. Uh, as a challenge and and we're perfectly willing to to brand it in that way and and um, be accountable on that cool another question I had before was that obviously you've got um a lot of risk you're the first check in how do you manage that risk or think about managing it the risk management is one of my favorite things to talk about <laughs> um, so <laughs> So for us, so sometimes we have some pushback in the market because uh, we're a journalist fund and, and we are investing across the broad and in the best ideas and impact. It's also another way of saying that we like diversification. Um, so we get both sectoral diversification as well as geographic because we're geographic agnostic. So, you know, our um, cellular protein company in Belgium isn't correlated with our fintech uh, ESG robo advisor in San Francisco. So, you know, basically across the whole fund, we've now got about 18 different investments in loads of different sectors. They're not correlated. So if there's like a downturn in in a particular um, kind of focus domain, you don't see a massive tanking. Like for instance, you saw a tanking of clean energy back in the day, but then people avoided it um, as a sort of area to invest in for quite a long time. So we like that uh, we're managing our sort of downside risk in that way. And then also just like understanding um, what's the long-term prospects of a company, knowing that there are people who really love um, our portfolio and would be even interested in acquiring them at the early stages. Like that to us is a really good indicator about where the company could go and what our extra strategy, at least at the bare minimum of like not losing capital and having some kind of multiple exit. Um, So downstream financing risk is something that we think about a lot too. Mm. And I guess a follow-on question to that, Um, I'm wondering, how do you think about time horizons? Because obviously you're dealing with early stage companies that have long-term visions, but then you just mentioned Mm. you might be thinking about acquisitions in the early stage. So how do you balance those sort of mentalities? Mm. Well, so by and large with a venture fund and we're a traditional venture capital firm, even though we're focused on impact, we sort of describe ourselves as just impact focused VCs. And so we're on the same 10 year time horizon. We wanna see liquidity events anywhere between year five to seven. Um, You know, it'd be great if some of those um, in our portfolio, uh, some of those portfolio companies IPO. Uh, That's not gonna be all of them. Statistically, that's not what happens in the the asset class. You have a few power law winners that generate most of the performance in your portfolio. Um, But, you know, there are some instances where it makes sense to 
uh, liquidate your position. Maybe you've made, like we did in Fund Zero, make 10x on one investment. And we're like, well, like, I, do you think we can make more out of this investment? I don't know. It might make sense to take cash off the table when we can. Um, and then you know, you've got the development of the secondary market too, where you have more options to um, liquidate your positions in certain companies. But our idea is that we're a partner on the cap table for the duration of your life cycle as a company, um, not just as like the sort of financial partner, but also as the impact steward. We really care about like who acquires you and who provides your growth capital because it actually could impact the trajectory of your company and what the original modus operandi of the business was. Peter, it seems like a lot of your is based around the social impact capital brand. So I was just wondering how you have gone about garnering those networks and building that brand so that you can connect these companies with the big series A's, but at the same, by the same token, also having this network of referrals and seeing these companies and getting to see these companies in the early stage. So the question is like, how, how do we bring build brand and yeah. Yeah. So we think brand is really important. Venture capital is really a game of relationships and networks, um, in our opinion. And we get really obsessed with this idea, and Sarah gets really obsessed with this idea of network centrality uh, and your ability to um, both find the opportunity and assess the opportunity. Um, and so we, we really focused on that and the firm and not having, not feeling blindsided or not feeling um, like we're not able to diligence something. Whenever we see a company, like an impact company that we haven't financed, we're like, why didn't we see it, right? Or particularly if it's really like high performing. And then we think, well, where, where is it located in the market? What is the reason we didn't see it? And you realize that there's this whole mesh and underlying network, which we might not have access to. And then we actively build bridges towards that network. Um, that's kind of how we operate. And so um, it's interesting, like we're backed by some pretty famous legacy venture capitalists. Um, they invested in us to begin with just because of the performance. Two of them are actually on record of like not really um, believing in impact investing as a strategy in general. Um, but we've time and time again been showing performance in relation to top decile funds. So that was their rhyme and reason. They're just like, well, we think you're just a really good picker of investments. We don't really mind about how you've picked them. Um, and so it's funny because as we've moved on and we've launched, you know, these, this is another fund that we're, we've just launched, um, you know, they're like, oh, well, you could drop the impact branding now. Like you're a good fund, like you don't need to use your impact branding. I'm like, no, 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 that's not the point. It's, it's literally, we're literally the lighthouse for impact deals, you know? And everyone wants to work for us. I was even just talking to a new entrepreneur who we're gonna invest in today, who was like, we're so pleased to work with somebody who's aligned with our values. And I'm like, awesome. And, and that's what we represent. And that's, I think people really underappreciate the value of brand and venture. Um, and then you get this legacy of the like older funds where you have no idea what they stand for. You have no idea what some of these funds stand for because um, they're so vague, you know? Whereas we're like, we, I, I caught this joke. I don't know if you guys have ever had this in Australia, but growing up when I moved to England, they had this, um, this company called Ronsil, which is like a wood sealant company. And you know, in England, it's like raining all the time, right? It's miserable, right? So, so you're like, all right, well, we should go seal out our, our, our wood back, back, back walls, right? With the sealant. And the tagline was Ronsil does exactly what it says on the tin. And that's what we like to think about with our firm in Silicon Valley is we're just like the Ron Sill of Silicon Valley. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, Peter, was there any, ever a time in your life that you can remember 
where you realize that impact and kind of financial gains or financial return were not mutually looking at sovereign development if you look at like msac or you look at um kazana um or mobadala in the um the middle east uh, a lot of these funds have had massive alpha in spurring entirely new sectors in their geographies um, or doing investments that um, were sort of designed to connect the nation to other nations. And um, the performance was just there. And it's that they technically were doing developmental finance, but having like pretty insane returns. So I sort of always knew at least at the state level with these state sponsored investment funds that you could generate good performance. So I just assumed that you could also do that in private markets. Um, yeah. Peter, something I'm interested in is what are some of the thematics of businesses that you're most passionate about right now? You were just talking briefly before about some of the new technology and AI, which we're using to leverage impact. What are you thinking about right now? Um, thinking about lots of different things. Um, what I really, you know, in, in the case of machine learning applications in high impact areas, there's actually a Australian startup that I advise and an investor in um, called Strongroom in Melbourne. Um, that does facial recognition for patient management. So that's anywhere from like prescription fulfillment all the way up to uh, identifying early onset dementia based on biomarkers on your face, which I think is pretty cool, like taking the GP out of the assessment process with greater degrees of accuracy. So, you know, based on your face, you basically wear how you are on your face. Um, which is incredible. And wouldn't you rather have a computer be like, you've got type two diabetes, you should probably do something about that, right? <laughs> um, so I think the future of looking after people and, and augmenting that with machine learning is super exciting. It's a pretty novel use of the technology. Um, I think that carbon nanotube membranes are super interesting um, in a variety of different contexts. One of our companies, Prometheus Fuels, um, sucks carbon out of the atmosphere and creates net zero fuel. Uh, which I find amazing. So atmospheric carbon suddenly becomes uh, a resource and you could own your own fuel supply chain um, without having to you know, drill for like fossil fuels or frack. Um, so that's quite exciting. Uh, then there are more, um, I'm a sort of touchy-feely guy sometimes, I'm <laughs> for better or worse. And so one of our portfolio companies I really love is Milk Run, um, which is kind of about food system resiliency as well as kind of economically empowering small to medium farms. So Julia's got this really cool platform, which basically if you're a small farm, you can um, uh, find this like new way of distributing your, your product, your produce on her platform. So it's like an online platform plus an app um, and it goes into this distribution center and then gets directly delivered to your door via um, the milk run kind of like distribution model. And um, you know, they're like farmers are typically gutted by these massive supermarket chains, like, you know, like the, the Trader Joe's of the world or, or what have you, or like the Safeways of the world, right? Um, and so what ends up happening is that farmers get greater distribution during times of duress, which we saw during COVID, there was massive supply chain disruption. Um, and so in that moment, Julia was able to swoop in and, you know, help these farmers from destitution, basically. People like, you know, pouring out all the milk or like watching their crops just die in the field. Um, so it's both like a, a sort of food resiliency play as well as an economic empowerment play for farmers. And then you could also argue it's also a health play because at the end of the day, you're getting fresh farm to table delivered directly to your door, right? So that's wow. quite, quite cool too. It's like a triple impact. 
Um, I love any deal that uses technology in ways that there's like this multiple impact layer where you can point to all sorts of different um, positive aspects of the deal, I guess. Peter, um, if I can ask you a bit more of a selfish question. Like the life cycle of VC is, as you said, is usually five to seven years. How do you know that you're a good capital allocator in the private markets without waiting five to seven years? Yeah, it's super difficult um, until you've had cash on cash returns. I mean, it's pretty difficult to like point to that. Um, all you can do is point to the multiple returns that you're generating on paper based on uh, mathematically the last round. Uh, we also love uh, co-investing with these other investors because uh, we don't have to uh, come up with any qualitative explanation as to why our portfolio is valued as what it currently is because we've had financiers who have come in at different terms at much higher valuations. And we point to that as performance and, and that's like irrespective of our own value system, yeah. you know? Um, so that's kind of how you prove out value at the earlier stages. Um, and there are some instances, you know, you don't actually wanna have your companies exit early. Usually that's indicative of underperformance because it means that your companies are not scaling to the which the degree to which they could. So actually staying um, private or staying private longer or um, you know, not having a liquidity event uh, in the first few years is actually a good thing. Um, we've got one company right now where like literally all of like the big four are trying to acquire it. And we're like, no, no, not yet. <laughs> not, not yet. In fact, they might be able to IPO. So we'd rather you not do that. Um, so it's fascinating actually. And a question I had before, you're very interested in this uh, latest developments in technology and a lot of your startups are obviously leveraging AI and machine learning. How much of it do you understand and are you able to sort of digest? Yeah, well, there's a certain limit. This is the reason why we augment ourselves. And I think some firms um, in-source experts and, you know, they want to have a partner who is in charge of AI or you have a partner who's in charge of blockchain or whatever it is, right? Um, our sort of counter argument there is just because you're technically savvy doesn't necessarily make you a good investor. Um, and so really um, what I can understand is the sort of layman narration and translation of what's going on at the technical level from the top tier advisor. You know, I'd much rather have Stephen Wolfram tell me, you know, what is the underlying value of a machine learning startup from a technological basis than me to attempt to understand that myself and go out and try to assess it myself. Uh, I think that would be ridiculous. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's something that, that's, that, cause that's something we struggle with because we're both from finance, economics, Adam does philosophy as well, backgrounds, um, and obviously, we understand all these things at like a high level and we can kind of maybe ideate around them, but then getting into the granular detail is quite difficult. But as you said, there's a lot of advisors out there that are going to be much better than you at that particular but, thing. But that, that said, like you can do industry research. You can understand whether or not the technology is actually viable. And um, also the technology shouldn't be the selling point of the business. The, the, the technology is like the kind of um, enabler of the business model. It's not the driver of the business model. Um, so you can oftentimes understand how it enables business in a way that it hadn't done before. And that's usually pretty obvious, or at least if you've like read enough, you, yeah. it's pretty obvious.
yeah, no. Um, Peter, if, if we can move into the quick fire questions now, I'm really excited to hear some of your answers. Yeah. So what we do with our guests is that we really like to understand just a couple things that have influenced them over the years. So if you're good with that, we're just going to ask you a couple sort of 30 second questions back to back. Sure. Cool. So what's one of your favorite books and why? Yeah. One of my favorite books. Uh, that came out and is quite kind of relevant to the COVID situation we just went through um, is called Severance. Uh, it's about a, uh, a disease that starts in Shenzhen and uh, swipes across the world. And it's an interesting kind of dystopian future, but where you've got like all these millennials who've got sort of dead iPhones who don't know how to make fires. <laughs> um, so I, I quite I quite like it because I'm really interested in the idea of um, resiliency, adaptation, and survival, and and that book kind of hammers home that we you know we need to get a little bit smarter about how we're preparing for the future. That sounds really interesting. I'll check that out. What's one of your favorite podcasts and why? Um, I love Masters of Business with Barry Reynolds. I mean, it's a classic. He's a champ. We love him. Yeah, very well known one. Um, yeah, so what's one of um, what's been a figure that has inspired you over the years? It could be a personal mentor, or it could be just someone that you might have read about or seen, sort of in media. Um, so I've I've got a mentor who I really love, who also married one of my friends, um, and he is a biotech investor and entrepreneur. Um, so he's called Nathaniel David, and, and he. It's just got a really impressive track record, but also he's just a frank talker uh, and tell, tells it exactly how it is. And, and in, in many respects, he sort of functions as a kind of older brother to me, which I, I really appreciate. Um, you know, it's really important, I think, when you're starting out and also later in life, it's always really valuable having a mentor and somebody to give you a, a sort of um, very frank perspective about what you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. Regardless of whether or not you follow their advice, because that's the other thing, is the, mm -hmm. the assumption that um, mentors always know what they're talking about too. Like I've got other mentors who um, have suggested I, I live my life in a different way and I've just completely ignored them and I feel great. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I've done it. So. It's important. And last question, outside of work, what's the thing that you'd love to do most just in your free time? Um, in my free time, I... I love deals a lot and I love information a lot. So I'm <laughs> love <just> deals. Streaming. <laughs> like I love deals a lot, but I also am a sucker for Instagram, just a sucker for Instagram. <laughs> so I always joke that if I wasn't a venture capitalist, I might be an interior designer slash artist because I love art. I love interior design. Um, and uh, I, I also love to doom scroll at like 3am. <laughs> interesting cool yeah we've never we've never heard that one before yeah um, it's unique <laughs> so um so peter at the end of our episodes we like to ask our guests if there's one thing from your crazy career so far um and your kind of experience at social impact capital that you'd like to leave our audience with as adam mentioned before they're 18 to, 18 to 25 um but we like to think future leaders what would it mm. be so um, I love this question too. Um, and I think there's a couple of things that I'd like to actually say on that. So um, we've had several interns now and associates come into our firm 
And what I like to tell them, because they've come from all different walks of life, is that um, people don't realize that they haven't met you yet. They're just waiting to meet you. Um, and if you approach life like that, with that attitude, you tend to bring in this like really great positive energy. So people, I think in general, uh, really want to be seen, heard, understood, loved. That's, that's basically it. And if you can extend that to everyone, you basically get this amazing feedback back into your own life. Um, so if you ever feel like you've got an imposter syndrome or you ever feel like you're not worthy to be in a certain position that you find yourself in, always remember that like these people have just yet to meet you and you haven't met them yet. And you don't even know that you're really excited to meet them too until you've had that conversation. Wow. Didn't know Beautiful I'd tear advice. up on a podcast yeah. about venture capital. Go but... <laughs> no, that's lovely advice. Um, thank you so much, Peter. We love everything you're doing. Um, as we mentioned at the start, what you're doing right now is literally what we want to do with our careers. So it's so inspiring to see how you got there and also just the success of social impact capital. Mm. Like we're looking for your portfolio companies, but we had no idea about some of the success you guys are having. So we look forward to continuing to see how it grows in the future. Yeah, thank really you so much. That was it. excellent. Awesome. Thanks, Peter.